Happy Monday, everyone, and welcome to the Religious Studies Project. We are very pleased to have you here. I'm Brianne Fallon, and I am joined by my co-editor, Dave McConaughey. How are you going, Dave? I am going quite well. It's, uh, you know, it's still it's still winter here, and it's still summer there, so it's cold here and hot for you, and both of us are probably waiting for the more mediating temperatures. Well, there was an article on well in our local paper today that Australian summer is getting longer than ever, so they're predicting that it will last through to May, and for those people who are on the other side of the world, it normally ends in February. So we have months. Oh we have months of beach weather to go. Oh dear! Is there an equivalent to the groundhog in in the United States? The groundhog comes up out of its hole, looks around to see whether it wants to continue hibernating or not, and then we get to to hear whether Puxatani Phil—that's the name of the. <laughs> oh yeah, I've seen uh, whether the movie. we get six more six more weeks of winter. Is there is there an Australian equivalent for that for winter? Not really. I mean, we have a wombat which lives in a burrow, but I don't really think it's the same as a groundhog. Oh, that's disappointing. I think you have an opportunity here. I'm sure I can capitalize on that in some way. Well, all of us here have an opportunity to think about the way in which we are signaled by systems, because today we have an interview with David Robinson interviewing Timothy Fitzgerald about empty signs in an automatic signaling system. So take it away. I'm here with uh, Tim Fitzgerald um, of the... University of Queensland, uh, where he's a visiting research professor. This interview follows on from his recent interview um, entitled The Problem with Religion and Related Categories. Um, and at the end of that interview, we had talked about his um, his fieldwork in India and his time living in Japan and how this had led to him writing The Ideology of Religious Studies. Um, and Central to that was an attempt to kind of pin down and locate this uh, category religion. Um, maybe you could pick the story up for us there, Tim. Yeah, sure. I mean, one of my uh, targets uh, was when I was in Japan um, was the, um, the the religion industry which was applied to to Japan itself in the form of the study of Japanese religions um, and the difficulty in actually identifying what constitutes a religion in Japan, um, which was also the problem about what constitutes the non-religious secular. Uh, and... Um, uh, a lot of my work was uh, aimed at trying to show that there is this basic contradiction between the the study of religion, whether that's by Japanese or non-Japanese scholars, uh, and um, the, you know the actual problem of of locating it, and the problem of religion is therefore the problem of the non-secular, and how we ended up with this idea that there is. Um, there is a religious world of the Japanese, um, which is somehow distinguishable from the non-religious world of the Japanese. So this led me to look historically for the source of this uh, binary uh, that uh, that we have in this religion-secular um, construction. And that led me back actually to the 17th century in England, uh, and I started doing a lot of reading uh, on, well, not, not only the 17th century, but going back to the um, 16th century, the post-Reformation discourse on religion is really what I was looking for. <clears throat> um, and what I found was that um, right the way through the 16th and 17th centuries, and I think that this is true going right the way through into the 18th and 19th and possibly up to the present in certain respects, is that the dominant meaning of religion was our Protestant's faith. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it was uh, a, male, a male literate construct of our Protestant faith. Uh, in a world that where faith does not mean a weak form of belief, faith is truth fundamentally, 
uh, Christian truth. It was a claim about Christian truth and the opposite of religion in the 16th, 17th centuries and coming on much more recently was not the non-religious secular. It was pagan irrationality, superstition, uh, barbaric um, uh, barbarism. Um, and um, uh, so what, what you have is not some dichotomy between the religious and the non-religious, but between true religion and a whole number of practices which are being discovered around the globe um, uh, which uh, look like a kind of mistaken attempt at finding God from the point of view of the Christians. Uh, so these are superstitious practices. And um, what, what interested me, at what point did that discourse on religion as Christian truth or Protestant Christian truth become redefined as religion as a private, inner, personal practice which is completely distinct from government. Uh, you see, the, 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 the thing is that when you go back into reading these texts from the 16th and 17th century, there's no such distinction between religion and non-religion. Uh, um, and this is actually what the research that led up to a book I published, there were two books that I published in 2007. One was Discourse on Civility and Barbarity, uh, a critical history of religion and related categories. And the other was an edited volume, which came out of a conference I organized at Sterling, which was called Religion and the Secular Historical and Colonial Formations. Um, and in that, in, in that collection of essays, I published a, a chapter uh, called Encompassing Religion, Privatized Religion, and the invention of modern politics. And uh, that theme, uh, privatized religion, encompassing religion, and the invention of modern politics, is central to discourse on civility and barbarity. And it represents, in some ways, a, a move forward from the ideology of religious studies, um, because it's actually looking at the historical documents that can guide us or suggest to us what were the circumstances in which somebody, i.e. someone like John Locke, who was probably the most powerful uh, inventor of the modern religion, non-religion dichotomy, in my view. Uh, John Locke, but not only John Locke, there were plenty of others who were doing it, who were uh, rhetorically redefining what the term religion means in order to uh, formulate a theory of government in which government is free from the domination of religion. Uh, and that introduces many, many interesting problems um, because what you have is an, from the time of John Locke going into, if you like, the Enlightenment. Uh, I'm not going to leave the Enlightenment untouched by critique as a um, but for the moment, let's think of the Enlightenment in the general sense that we do typically think about it, um, which is um, a, a lot of uh, a lot of men, mostly men. There aren't didn't come across any female texts at this period, but no doubt there may have been some. But it was mostly men um, who wanted to have the right to accumulate private property um, uh, and for that private property to be clearly their property and not to be invaded um, and tampered with by the sacred monarch. We have to remember that when John Locke was writing in the 1680s and 1690s, um, this was a time of enormous turmoil in England. We'd had the uh, execution of the previous king, King Charles I, in 1649. We'd had the Putney debates in the 1640s, which were very radical and which were questioning a great deal of the status quo. Um, 
after the execution of Charles I in about 1652, I think it was, Hobbes published the Leviathan. And in the Leviathan, you find several references to politics, the noun word politics. Uh, and in John Locke's essays on government and his other writings, uh, essays on toleration, for example, you get references to politics by which he means uh, government which is not dominated by religion and which represents the interests of uh, male private property accumulators. And this was formulated in terms of natural rights. Um, and there are a whole string of natural rights which were argued for. Uh, but these were really rights formulated by by men, many of them nonconformists, who were chafing against the restrictions of the sacred monarch in his court and the church that, the established church that legitimated the sacred monarch, performed the coronation ceremonies, gave him the legitimation to do what he liked, basically. He was an arbitrary monarch. He was portrayed as a tyrant by the people who wanted to um, uh, free up government from the control of this particular uh, uh, ideological complex of the sacred monarch. We can call it the Ancien Regime to generalize mm. it because Fra France was in a very similar situation where you have um, a, a closed hierarchy of um, classes um, which is born into uh, land ownership and born into status and it's basically a fixed order of divine conception. Um, and the sacred monarch is the heart of the nation. Uh, the sacred monarch is God's appointed and anointed representative on earth. So the sacred monarch had enormous powers. And there were a lot of uh, people at this time who were nonconformist, who didn't believe in the established church and who didn't believe in the sacred monarch. Uh, though it was very dangerous to say so. Um, now, John Locke um, was one of the most powerful and influential uh, writers to question the status quo of the time and to try and redefine what a number of terms really mean. And religion, obviously, is one of the most important. But, you see, I can't find a consistent discourse on the noun word politics in English, uh, before around the middle of the 17th century. Mm. And the most consistent and developed discourse on politics that I can find is in John Locke, where he defines politics as a government um, not representing the arbitrary power of a sacred monarch, but government protecting the natural rights of uh, Englishmen. Uh, and this is gendered. I mean, I'm using the expression Englishman because women were not really much in the picture. Uh, and it's not it's not all men either, is it? It's uh, it's the wealthy landowning classes. As, so it's 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 not only gendered, but it's there's there's class in there as well. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, because of course, one of the great sources, the new sources of private property at this time, was from the enclosures, and the enclosures were where. Um, legislation bills were passed in the house of parliament which is the legislature uh in order to transform a piece of common land into private property now common land was land which for centuries had been uh, conventionally shared in ways which were determined by uh, local customs you know but there were very definite ways in which people subsisted on common land. Uh, often a lot of the most poor people in feudal society, where they were working part of the time for the local master, the local lord, uh, but they were also working for their own subsistence and they had common land to do this on. Now, when that common land started disappearing through the Enclosure Acts and land that had been shared by different classes of people according to different conventions and customs was now being enclosed and declared to be the private property of, a, of an individual. 
And I think this is very significant because this, uh, these enclosures were continuing right the way through the 17th, the 18th, well into the 19th century. And uh, more and more people were being deprived of their traditional subsistence and were being forced out uh, into homelessness um, and poverty and starvation. And you get a, a during that period, you get a growing problem of vagabondage, huge numbers of poor people who were being turned into vagabonds. And uh, these vagabonds were despised by the by the owners of land because they um, were a living source of um, uh, disharmony and conflict and discord, and they were treated really badly. Um, there was a parish system. Uh, of uh, which um, was called the poor laws, where people without any kind of subsistence had the right to, to seek help from various parishes, and the parishes were supposed to give them uh, help and food and uh, various other um, necessities. Um, that uh, poor law system was becoming very overburdened because there were more and more poor people who were calling on it. And this created resentments from other people. So you get a, a very messy situation. Now, what's happening to all these vagabonds, all these poor families that are being turned off the common land that no longer have anywhere to subsist, any land to subsist on? Well, gradually, especially during the 18th century, they're going into the new industrial centers and becoming wage labor. Before that, a lot of them were becoming wage labor, agricultural labor. There was a huge uh, growing uh, agricultural wage labor set. Uh, so the, um, the people who lost subsistence land were losing their conventional ties to the old estate system, the old feudal system, and were becoming like loose cannons. They, they didn't have any relation, any uh, place uh, in any kind of system or structure. So they were becoming, as it were, um, peas out of a pod. They were rolling around the place and looking for work and often going into the growing craft centers, but they were also working as agricultural uh, wage labor so that was um that that was one of the processes complex process but a very uh definite process that was occurring as part of what i would describe as the emergence of modernity um and uh, i think it's important to realize that the natural rights that these men were proclaiming from john locke and and many others going right the way up to the natural rights of the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution and beyond. These natural rights were habeas corpus. You can't be arrested without um, being charged with some crime. You have to have access to a lawyer. You're allowed. The, another right would be to um, express one's views in public. The right of publishing and so on. Um, uh, but I think that the key. The key right was the right to accumulate private property um, and to have those that private property represented in Parliament. So uh, if you trace the way that Parliament and government changed during the second half of the 17th century going on into the 18th, you get increasingly um, – you get uh, – the, the the idea that parliament the the real uh, uh function of parliament is to represent the natural inalienable rights of individual private property holders against the predations of the sacred monarch against the invasions of a tyrant prince against arbitrary taxation and and these kinds of things that's yeah, so really it's, it's, it's not uh yeah. it's not a liberty um, in some abstract metaphysical sense, it's it's the liberal order is the freedom to own property um, without you know without interference from as you say from the the divinely appointed monarch. 
Yes, I, I think that's true. I, I think that that was the because after all, not only through the Enclosure Acts, but also in this colonial situation, which was burgeoning, uh, more and more money could be made out of uh, colonial production, including the slave trade. I mean, the the, um, the the men that we're talking about who were demanding representation in Parliament on the basis of a property qualification. Uh, these were often the same men who were not only benefiting from the enclosures, but they were also benefiting from um, the plantations and colonies that were being established. For example, in North America, um, John Locke had very uh, specific interests in the Carolinas. Mm -hmm. uh, William Penn, who was another um, rather like-minded uh, nonconformist, he was a Quaker, uh, he was the founder of Pennsylvania. Um, both of them were uh, people who loved to write bills of rights. They were, but they were the inventors of bills of rights and constitutions. And their bills of rights and constitutions were actually adopted in in the Americas. And um, what they were demanding was uh, again they wanted government that represented natural rights, but particularly the, the natural rights of white male private property accumulators, uh, in, in, including, of course, the slave trade. I don't think William Penn was involved in the slave trade. No, but George uh, Washington it, certainly was. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, so was John Locke. I mean, John Locke had investments in the... Um, in the Africa Corporation, whatever it's called, you had the um, you had the East India Company, but there were also other companies dealing with specialized areas of trade. They were chartered; they were royal charters, but they had private investors. And uh, I think it was the Africa Company that was very much involved in the slave trade. So, I mean, th th these men, people like John Locke, they were they were ambitious. Uh, they wanted private property. They wanted to accumulate, and they wanted representation in Parliament. I think an awful lot of the 1688 Bill of Rights um, and the invitation for the Protestants uh, from Holland, you know, William and Mary, this was all involved in consolidating this new view of Parliament. Now, you, you mentioned the word liberty, and that's a very important one, uh, because liberty was a term that comes up in the Magna Carta in the 1215, and I think there was a second Magna Carta in 1225 or something. Liberty is central to the Magna Carta. But that was in a very, very different situation. The liberty that was being demanded then was the liberty of powerful nobles, um, with their own private armies, demanding liberties from the king. Mm. Well, in the beginning of the 17th century, Sir Edward Coke, who was a, a very effective jurist, um, he began to do a lot of work on this term liberty and to extend its meaning in a way which became much more useful for the, pre the situation in the 17th century. And the meaning of liberty came very much to do with the liberty of um, being represented in Parliament, your own natural inalienable rights being represented in Parliament. Particularly, it was about uh, property. I mean, you could call it the democratization of property, but I think it was a, a new system of private property whereby land became commodified in such a way that it could be bought and sold for cash um, and we're talking about the um, the land which was derived from the enclosures. We're talking about the theft of Irish Catholic lands by Cromwell, who took over his um, he took over with him a man called Sir William Petty, who was a polymath, brilliant guy. He was good at just about everything, and he was taken over by Cromwell as the land surveyor general of Ireland. And he measured out a great deal of land in in uh, measured plots. He devised a method to measure plots of land so that it could easily be quantified, valued, bought and sold. And the methods that he used uh, were actually used 
on a much larger scale by Thomas Jefferson uh, in the 1780s when they started surveying land systematically from the East Coast going right up to the Appalachians. And later it would go much further. But these are vast tracts of what they thought were empty land. Actually, they were Native American lands. But the Native Americans didn't think that any individual could own land. It was completely inconceivable to them. So um, these empty lands were being measured out in saleable plots by uh, Thomas Jefferson and a whole team of uh, land surveyors. So what you have is um, not only the the emergence, the birth, I think, of a global private property market in land, but private property in capital. I mean, private property can take a lot of different forms. And uh, going back again to John Locke, where you know John Locke was involved in the founding of the Bank of England in 1694. Mm-hmm. This seems to me to be the founding of the Bank of England seems to me to be as important to the invention of religion in its modern dominant sense as a private uh, private personal communication with God, which has nothing to do with government. Well, I think this is um, what's so, this so fascinating about uh, discourse and civility and barbarity particularly, is that this analysis of the historic the historic development of you know the category of religion and and its others um that in in fact it leads to a clearer idea of the function of this category which is to normalize and mystify the processes of colonial and you know and a colonial power and the power of of landowners uh, but what's Interesting is that that mystification has been so successful that despite these um, being uh, historically contingent and um, shifting and unstable and sometimes empty categories, it no nonetheless it makes up this contemporary episteme in which we um, live and in which. Um, these ideas have become so normalized and not not only normalized and neutralized, but the actual basic organization of so many of our institutions, you know, aspects of law and of parliament and academia and, and uh, just everyday speech. Yes. Yes. I think you're absolutely right. I think that there is a, a process where, uh, a number of um, narratives, um, stories are being told. Um, uh, for, for example, Man in the State of Nature, which was a story told slightly differently by Hobbes, by Locke, and later by Rousseau. But Man in the State of Nature, it seems to me to be a, a, a complete fiction, but which nevertheless had great rhetorical power because it placed um it, it it invented a kind of an original human nature um which is of the lone individual uh survivor um a kind of savage survivor using his native intelligence to uh, accumulate everything that he needs for himself and his uh, family. And I, again, I'm using gendered terminology because, after all, it wasn't woman in the state of nature; it was man in the state of nature. Um, and women don't—they—they they, they usually get—you know—they usually get included in family. You can imagine this noble savage, or this, just let's say, this savage surviving through the wit of his own native intelligence and providing for his family against the competition of other uh, individual savages who are also trying to grab what they can for their own ends. And this is a completely unrealistic picture we know from anthropology. Anthropologists who've studied, say, hunter-gatherers know that this is completely not as, uh, you know, um, as human... uh, human groups survived or prospered. They didn't survive as competing individuals. But this um, this idea of man and the state of nature puts that on the table in a powerful way. 
and it's aimed against um, uh, other alternative versions. Um, for example, John Locke, um, it, it, what, the first of his treatises on government is an extended critique of a man called Sir Robert Filmer, who wrote a book called Patriarchy. And Patriarchy is um, it, it, it's actually um, a very powerful representation of what was considered to be an orthodox Christian Protestant, but post-Reformation, but pre-modern, I'd say, view of of the world. And um, basically, it's this enclosed hierarchical fixed system in which everybody knows their place and the the whole is harmonious as long as everybody uh, does what they're supposed to do at whatever level of the organization they operate, whatever their status is. And uh, Man and the State of Nature was uh, a deliberate attempt to subvert this harm, this idea of a harmonious, hierarchical, patriarchal society and to introduce the idea that we're all in our real natural selves uh, individuals who are um, uh, struggling to survive, and we do it through our own native intelligence. And those of us who have uh, the higher intelligence will be able to accumulate more. However, the people who were in this situation at some point came to realize, and this is all so fictitious, that... um, they needed a system of rules that protected each other's property so that if there was any um, any contestations over property rights, uh, then they, the rules could be used to sort them out. And, of course, the rules were the laws which we needed a, a government to represent and to enforce. Um so government or politics ought to be about the representation of uh, laws that defend the various natural rights uh, that, um, such as private property. So this, this is the fiction of the contract theory of government. You start with man and the state of nature. How, does, how do human beings get out of the state of nature? Why they make a contract um, with a particular form of government which will look after the laws that ensure that their property is kept safe and that whoever owns what uh, gets their just rewards. Uh, that's a, a completely new th- – this idea of government completely dislocates the old one. I mean, it was both uh, heretical and treasonous. And that's why John Locke and other people who argued like him had to keep escaping from England and going to Amsterdam to get free of um, of these charges of heresy or treason. Um, so this, uh, what what these narratives do, is that they explain what the real meaning of other ideas are: liberty. Liberty, the real meaning of liberty comes through these narratives. Um, liberty and the, the term liberal is another one that begins to crop up, which I've done quite a lot of work on. Um, so uh, I think that that does that. Sorry, I've rather lost myself. Does that answer what you were you were mentioning? Um, yes. Well, w- what I want to do now is kind of step up a level and sort of think a little more broadly about this um kind of we can call it like cognitive colonialism or uh you know this this modern episteme where terms like religion the secular liberal liberalism politics where these kind of make sense and you've described it as uh, uh these of being empty signs in an automatic signaling system and i wondered if you would if, tell us a little bit what you mean by this okay um okay well i mentioned to you that in the last session that i found that there were so many references for religion so many things are religious that the term seemed to lose any specific meaning. Right, yeah, there's a religion um, of everything, right? 
of the religion of everything. So it's become the sort of generic abstraction uh, with uh, very problematic boundaries. It's very difficult to know what cannot be included in this term. Um, but on the other hand, you're getting the development, uh, at first a very minority, nonconformist idea that religion has a very specific meaning which is that it's to do with your own inner devotion and worship and your own morality and your own concerns with the life after death. Um, and it has to be clearly distinguished from another domain, which is about the government of this world according to laws and particularly the defense of um, the private rights of individuals. So, um, but then... Uh, at the same time, uh, you find that all of these terms, as they get uh, used in re- more and more rhetorical si- situations throughout the 18th century, they, they all develop the sense of losing their original fairly concrete meaning and becoming empty generic categories. So that today, not only do we have a religion of everything, but there's a politics of everything. So politics, it seems to me, is a word, a noun word, which is actually invented in the second half of the 17th century to talk about a particular form of government, which was both treasonous and heretical at the time, uh, but which uh, has become so uh, so generic, so abstract. There are now there's now a politics of everything. There are politi- political systems everywhere and at all times in history. And this also leads on to the question of political economy because, you know, political, the term political economy is also around from an early time in the 17th century. Um, and um, uh, the, the, by the time uh, of uh, Adam Smith, say, in his The Wealth of Nations, which was published in 1776, political economy is itself uh, a, a discourse. There is a subject called political economy, which is emerging um, in the in the 18th century. So the question of where does pol- politics end and political economy begin becomes important. And I couldn't find. I've done a lot of research on the uh, on the history of the term uh, political economy, and I can't find. You know, there, there doesn't seem to be a solution to this. And then in the late 18th century, early 19th century, you get the term economics breaking off from political economy and becoming a, a, a subject of study in itself, a science of economics, classical economics, liberal classical economics. So economics becomes defined as its own area of expertise. But, how, you know, what is actually the... The area itself, how do we define economics and distinguishing it from political economy or simply politics? You know, what part of economics can be distinguished from politics and what part of politics can be distinguished from economics in modern discourse? So that was another problem. Um, There was also, um, I I came to realize that what what was happening from the late 17th century is that a number of terms which had a kind of typical uh, deployment were becoming abstracted and reified and turned into generic abstractions. Um, And uh, another was history, which I've more recently been doing a a lot of work on. You know, you get... An, an older term, history, which had, if you like, local meanings, referred to the genealogies of kings and great events, heroes, lo- local local memory, all sorts of thing in history. Um, but by the end of the 18th century, you've got history with a capital H emerging as a scientific study, and it's become universal history. Um, you know, it's the history of the world. Uh, Turgio, uh, Turgo in 1751, who was a very influential French philosopher, uh, he developed some really interesting writing 
on the idea of the progress of the human mind through universal history. Mm. I mean, look how far we've come, the progress of the human mind through universal history. Uh, progress, you can't think of history without progress. The, the modern dominant idea of history as a professionalized academic discipline was born in conjunction with the idea of progress. Not only does history seek to uh, to find how we progressed, the roots by which humans progressed from the past into the present state of European enlightenment, uh, but also history comes to be a sign of progress. In other words, um, uh, only Euro-Americans are advanced enough to come to realize that there is a history of the world, a universal history, uh, which is the history of the progress of the human race up until that point in history, i.e. the leaders of this progress, the um, the European philosophers, whether they're in France or Germany or Scotland or England or North America or wherever. So you get all of these terms which are increasingly problematic. You've got politics, religion, politics, political economy, economics, progress, history. You've also got the term modern. Well, what does modern mean? Where did it come from? You've also got the term the Enlightenment. Again, this is, um, uh, you know, I've done quite a lot of research into the concept of the Enlightenment. And what I found is that nobody can agree on when the Enlightenment began. Nobody can agree on when it ended, if it at all ended. Some people think the Enlightenment is still going on. Um, nobody can agree on who the most important thinkers were, which is interesting because some come straight to mind, but there's enormous disagreement among in, uh, experts on that, nor on what the fundamental ideas of the Enlightenment are. In other words, all of these things are contested, but the term the Enlightenment, like the term modern, like the term progress, like the term history, like the term religion or politics or political economy, they we use them as though it's obvious what they mean. Um, so it seems to me that what's happened is that they have um, uh, are the, the rhetorical history, if you like, of these terms has progressively buried the history of conflict, contestation the uh, indefinability um, of, of all these terms, and they have become, as it were, just unitary signs which we can deploy automatically without thinking about the, the, the their history of conflictual contestation and so on, without thinking about what they mean. Um, we can bury a whole number of very problematic aspects of these generic con categories um, by simply deploying them as though they're signs in an automatic signaling system. And in fact, I would go further. It seems to me that um, we, we are more operated on than operating. <laughs> I mean, these, you know, these, um, these signs, these general categories uh, operate our texts. In fact, they constitute our own subjectivity to a large extent. Um, our idea of ourselves as being autonomous agents, which is actually a kind of feels like a an inherently intuitive experience of myself as an autonomous agent, um, but it's very much dependent on this whole ideology that has been constructed out of these empty categories, uh, of which the individual may be one of the most empty. Uh, so this is how I, I I moved from talking in a kind of Dumontian sense of the configuration of modern categories. Uh, I was influenced by Durkheim's attempt to um, to describe uh, collective symbolic representations in his work on totemism. Um, I've been, to a certain extent, influenced by uh, the idea of the, the the expression meta categories and meta narratives of Lyotard. Um, I have probably been influenced largely unconsciously by semiotics deriving from Saussure, 
possibly Derrida, but I'm not directly indebted to them at all because I didn't come by that route. I think probably I've absorbed through the skin a great deal of the influence of these uh, writers and thinkers. But basically, I came to this idea of signs in a signaling system through just looking at these categories and trying to work out what what they are, um, what they mean, what their range of applications is, uh, what their origin was and how they were used in the origin and how how they're now used. Uh, I think uh, does that make sense? Very much so, and I think it's a perfect uh, a perfect place to wrap up. Um, I think you've summarised, and it was nice that you brought it back to where we started. Actually, that's uh, that that's uh, that's nice. Um, but I just want to say thanks for uh, for speaking to us today, uh, Tim, and uh, and sharing your yeah. ideas with the RSP. No, it's a, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, I hope we can continue this because there's a lot more to be said. Um, oh, absolutely. absolutely. Thing, I'm stopping because we've run out of time and that's that's literally yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the only reason. Okay. But uh, we, that's brilliant. We'll, uh, we'll definitely uh, organise another, another conversation soon. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you very much, David. Thank you. Nice to talk. Very good to hear from you. I'm really thankful that we can bring interviews with uh, figures in the academy who have really produced seminal work that so many of us think about and has informed our work. I'm I'm always telling my students that categorization and how we use and deploy categories is so essential to think about. It's it's part of the way that I always start the classes, part of the way that I structure how how I do my course design, and. And for you, Bree, I'm I'm wondering how those issues play out when you do your work, because your classroom is a museum and museum patrons. So how do how do categories work for you? What's the the central category that you have to struggle dealing with the difference between scholarly use and the legacy of where that category came from and uh, popular understanding or misunderstanding uh, about categories? Yeah, there's definitely two terms that immediately jump to mind. Um, the first is is the word the Holocaust. I mean, working um, in a, a Holocaust museum, the idea of the term Holocaust, which obviously refers in an ancient context to a, a, a burnt sacrifice, and then how that is transferred into a historical context is obviously quite complex, but the main uh, sort of categorical issue that comes up with this term is to whom does it refer? Does it only refer to the Jewish victims? Does it refer to other victims that were targeted? And then we fall into the category of, of, of genocide. And at what point were certain groups targeted with genocidal intent and does that mean that they then fall into the category or, or the title of Holocaust? And so you have this sort of battle between who is included in this title of Holocaust and who is in and and where do you draw the line in genocide? Now, genocide obviously as a legal definition that came out in 1948 in the International Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide has quite clear parameters. But how that that term is then used in the media is really falls outside of those parameters. So, I mean, a key example would be the Cambodian genocide, which technically by the 1948 definition actually does not fall within the parameters um, because the target group was a political group primarily. Yes, there was um, ethnical targetings as well, but because it was primarily a political group being targeted, it actually does not fall within the parameters of the 1948 definition. And it might surprise people to know that the Cambodian genocide was actually refer- only referred to as such for the first time in, in a courtroom in 2019. That was the wow. first time it was actually referred to as a genocide in a legal setting. Um, so these terms, the way that they're used in in a broader context as opposed to the way they're used in their respective academies and how they're used um, even in a classroom context or a museum context is um, it's exceedingly complex and it's not just a religious studies issue. I mean, these ideas expand across all disciplines really. But um, thinking about other disciplines, religious studies, all those sorts of things, 
What do we have next week, Dave? Well, next week we have the return of our discourse episodes. Each month we are now delighted to share a current events discussion between um, Religious Studies Project editors and uh, some of our colleagues from around the world. And I can't tell you exactly what they're going to talk about because they wait until as close as they can to the publishing deadline to have the most timely and most current thing that they can discuss. And so while um, I can't say specifically what it's going to be, I can say that I'm really thankful that um, our Patreons have been able to support us in um, developing this work. This discourse episodes were originally for um, patrons only of our Patreon account. And we encourage everybody that enjoys the work that Project uh, RS, which is what we are called on Patreon, um, that we do here and supporting our ability to to fund scholars when they when they do work for us, and to keep all of our episodes that are that are airing free for everyone, um, we'd invite you to um, to give us a dollar, give us five dollars if you're if you're able to give us ten dollars a month. Uh, making podcasts is is not cheap, it's not free, the labor isn't free, and when we can, I know that all of us would love to support work that we share and work that we enjoy and work that's promoting interesting and valuable conversations for the field. And so next time you'll have an opportunity to hear some current events things. And we hope that that will help convince you that we are worth your money and worth your time. And we are thankful for both of those things. And until then, all that's left to say is thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop, and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. <laughs>